no yo-yos this morning. Sorry. But what we do have is God's great authoritative word this morning, and this is enough. Amen? Amen. Let's get into it. Last week, we said that the Christ-like life is fueled by faith in God. Our faith, that is the degree to which we trust him and his promises, that impacts the way that we think and the things that we say and, and the way that we approach those inevitable trials that were, will come our way in life, right? And we looked at Abram once again, and we saw a time when his, his life was being crowded they were living in a land where there just wasn't enough room. There wasn't enough room for his people and Lot's people and the people who were already living in the land. And so things were getting tense. Things were getting tight. And he had a trial on his hands. And it was his faith in God that moved him to Christ-like generosity and kindness Toward Lot. He essentially said, go ahead, look at all the land, and you take your pick. You choose which piece of land would be best for you, Lot. See, he didn't feel like he needed to go out and stake his claim. He didn't feel like he needed to go protect the area that God had said he would give him. No, he trusted God, and God would make all of that happen. He would take care of all of those things. His nephew, though, Lot, seemed like he was driven by something else. He seemed like he was driven by a desire for, for earthly prosperity. A desire to almost make, make heaven on earth here and now. Even if that meant great compromise. And so he went and he lived in an area that was populated by people that the Bible describes as exceptionally wicked people, the people of Sodom. But that's understandable, right? I mean, that's just part of the way uh, that, that we have to live these days. Compromise is just a part of life. This is a crazy world we're living in. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Everyone's got to be willing to play a little dirty at least some of the times to get anywhere in life. you got to look out for yourself. you got to sh make sure that number one is taken care of, and if you don't, well, everyone else is doing it, and you're probably going to get squashed. In a world such as ours, I don't think it's that surprising when we see people who are out for themselves. But what is surprising is when we see examples of self-sacrifice for the sake of others. That is astounding. I had the great privilege this past week to attend a lunch for veterans of the United States Armed Forces. And there were uh, several World War II veterans there, including our own Bob Lazier. And it was, yeah, it was an incredible time and, and an amazing thing to witness the, the camaraderie that was there, the appreciation that they had for each other. And I just walked away just utterly astounded and impressed at these people who had given of themselves for the sake of others. It's a beautiful thing. 
It's something that should be regarded, respected, admired. There's something just unexpected, unordinary, admirable, praiseworthy when it comes to those who sacrifice themselves for the good of others. And that is what we see here in Genesis chapter 14. Let's take a look at it. And as we do, let's ask the question, what is it that motivates? What is it that motivates the sacrifice that is made here? Where does it come from? Here's the situation. Four, four kingdoms to the east apparently had an agreement with five smaller city-states to the west. And the idea was that as long as these small kingdoms paid a tribute to the four larger kingdoms, they, they, they paid in maybe a percentage of their, of their wealth, their income, maybe some goods. As long as that was happening, they would be allowed to continue to exist. Look at verse 1. In the days of Armraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketelamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketelamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So here's the deal. Twelve years this has been going on. Five kings... Five kings were forced to pay a regular tribute to their overlords. Have you ever been treated unfairly? Maybe had to capitulate to a bully for 12 years? It gets old really fast. Let me tell you, when I found that kid on the way to school and I stopped him and I made him give me his lunch, <laughs> it worked for a while, but, but in time he got tired of it and he wouldn't have any more and it was so frustrating so frustrating and that's what's happening here these people are fed up by year 13 they said no more we're not going to do this anymore there's five of us and we each have our own kingdom we don't need to do this any longer i wonder if they considered the risk what's at risk when you refuse to pay a bully you risk getting a beat down, right? A big beat down. Here in Genesis 14, the four kings of the east, they hear of it, and they're not pleased. So Ketelamur and his allies, they mobilize their forces, and they begin to head west to teach these ingrates a lesson. Let's show them what happens to anyone who dare defy us. Look at verse 5. In the 14th year, Ketelamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim. The Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites. And also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazantamar. The first ones on the list are the Rephaim. These are tall, very experienced, very large 
people. They were a formidable force, and yet this passage just says they were defeated. They got put down real quick. And it wasn't just because they were the first on the road. It was, I think, strategic. I think these four kings, they said, let's take down the most powerful people first. Because if we do that, that's going to strike fear into the rest of everybody. And they will be afraid of us. They'll know that we're, that we're coming, and they know that it's not going to go well for them. From there, they take down the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveth, or Shaveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir. They go down to the lowest part of the map there, down below the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And then they turn upwards. And they go towards Kadesh into the land of the Amalekites and the Amorites. This is a pretty comprehensive campaign. These eastern kings, they want to make sure everyone knows. Everyone in all of Canaan knows that they are the bosses here. Be afraid. And so they take care of everything. They cut off the trade route between Egypt and Canaan. And they get rid of all the potential allies here of the five Dead Sea Kings. Now notice, they haven't attacked the Dead Sea Kings yet. They say that they save that for last. After having taken care of everyone else, now they draw their attention to these kings. This is the moment of truth. This would be the final blow. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Armraphal, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. In probably panic and desperation, five kings ready their troops. They had already heard of all the carnage that had been going on in the land, but we got to do something. What are we going to do? Just let them come in and, and, and take us? No, we have to stand. We have to fight. And so they rise up and they meet them in battle. And it's a massacre. It is a massacre. The Dead Sea kings flee their lives and as they flee some of the soldiers fall into pits on the edge of the sea now up on the screens you'll see an aerial view of the tar pits and the next picture is actually a closer view of one of these pits it is nasty looking stuff what a way to go i don't you would not want to go this way and yet john calvin as he looks at this passage, he thinks that some of these people that were falling into these pits, they weren't accidentally falling into the pits. They were so afraid of the humiliation they were going to face at the hands of their enemies, so afraid of the brutal end that they were going to face, that they just willingly just said, uh, it, this is better, and threw themselves in. Either way, it's a grim picture. 
It was all over too soon. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So much for Lot's big plans. So much for health, wealth, prosperity, and happiness. Those dreams just go up in smoke, don't they? Imagine, imagine being invaded by a foreign army. Imagine the brutalities that you would witness. Imagine the carnage. Imagine the horror of watching your family suffer at the hands of these violent, bloodthirsty men. Not everyone fell by the sword. There were some, there were some who escaped fled for their lives. In fact, there was one soldier who traveled about 20 miles and found himself wandering through the camp of a man named Abram. Here's what happened. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So this war-weary soldier, he, he stumbles into the camp. Now, I imagine Abram had already heard some things about what was going on all around him. I mean, how could you not? But when he heard that his nephew Lot had been taken, that was news to him. Now, let's ask ourselves a question. What would you do if you were Abram? Part of me thinks my first reaction would be, serves him right, serves him right. I knew that it wasn't a good idea to choose that piece of land and go hang out with those wicked, wicked people. Play with fire, you're going to get burned. Got what was coming to it. That's one thought. Another thought might be, that is, that is a shame. How tragic. How sad. What a way to go. I mean, I wish there was something that I could do to help. But I mean, if the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah and those other three, if they didn't stand a chance against them, then what chance do I have? What a tragedy. It's too bad, really. That's another thought. Oh, and what about this? Remember that Abram was the one God had made a promise to. You remember several weeks ago, we talked about a situation where Abram was going down to Egypt. And it was possible that maybe one of his reasons for saying that, that Sarai is my sister instead of my wife, one of the reasons is because he was trying to protect the promise that God had given him. He, he believed God, and he wanted to make sure, God, I want, I want that, your will for me, I want that to happen. I want that to come true. And so he made a decision to say, we're going to just say you're my sister, and then we'll, we'll figure a way out of this. I wonder, I wonder if I, being Abram, would have said, you know, I just can't, I can't go help Lot. I can't go help him. God's made a promise to me. What if I get killed? What's going to happen to God's promise then? See, I can think of a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons to just sit back and do nothing. 
reasons to stay home and mind my own business. Maybe just be grateful for the family that I've got. Maybe even thank God. God, you said you were going to bless me. You were going to make me a blessing to others. You said you were going to bring a great nation from me. And look, you protected me because this army could have easily just swept through my camp. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for sparing me. But you know, we don't see any of that in our passage this morning. We don't see Abram coming up with any excuses. Instead, we see a man of action. And he suits up like one of Mel Gibson's characters, and he starts rallying his troops. He says, let's go. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. <laughs> Where did this guy come from? This is amazing. No longer the fearful Bedouin who comes up with schemes to save his own skin. Abram turns into a warrior general. He's king of his people. He's the commander-in-chief readying his finest soldiers to go on an impossible rescue mission. 318 men he gathers. These men were probably really young. It says they were born in his household. They were born in his outfit. He helped raise these men. They were loyal to him. They would go anywhere. They would do anything. They would give their very lives gladly at the order of their leader. And they take off in hot pursuit as far as Dan. Now you can see on the map that Dan is a fair ways north of Mamre where Abram was. It's 120 miles north. That's pretty far. This wasn't any overnight raid. This wasn't a a Navy SEAL, we're going to get in and we're going to get out, get the job done, and then we're out of here. No, it wasn't that. This was a long-suffering, this was a, a difficult and exhausting pursuit. It's not unlike another journey that was going to be made by one of Abram's descendants. We read last week in Philippians that Jesus left the comfort of his heavenly home he didn't just sit back and wait for us to come meet him halfway. No, while we were still sinners, Paul says in Romans, he came after us. He sacrifices for us. He gives his life for us. And once again, we see Abram's faith fueling his life in a way that foreshadows Christ. Abram looks like Jesus who would come after him. As Jesus would sacrifice himself for our good, Abram is putting it all on the line here for the sake of Lot and his family. Now, Abram's trust in God was so great that he knew that even if his efforts failed, even if he wasn't successful in freeing Lot, even if they were defeated, God's still going to keep his promises because God said it. I can rely on him. His confidence in God was, was just, it was firm. It was absolute. God is in control of all things. He's absolutely sovereign. And because of that, Abram could run into harm's way. He could go out on that highway to the danger zone, knowing that God 
and his will, God's will would be done. You see, it wasn't up to Abram whether or not he was going to live or die. It's not up to me whether or not I live or die or any of you. The time, the place, the means, that's God's territory. All Abram had to be concerned with was doing the right thing. God told Abram that he was going to be a blessing to others. And so that's exactly what Abram was going to do. He was going to go out, and I'm going to be a blessing to others. I don't know how it's going to happen. We're probably, we're probably facing certain death, but by golly, we're going to get out there, and we're going to be a blessing to others. Look what happens next, verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. The enemy must not have been suspecting anything. Maybe they were still gloating in their victories. I imagine there, around the campfire there were lively retellings of the of the, of the victories on the battlefield. There were probably spectacles being made of the people that they captured, bringing them out and making them do who knows what. There's probably song, dance, gambling, lots of alcohol, and all that probably followed by a deep, a deep intoxication-induced sleep. And that's when Abram and his band of stealth fighters, they divided and they conquered. Swift and ferocious must have been the attack. It sent the enemies in some type of hive-like frenzy. And eventually, they're running for their lives with Abraham, Abram behind them, going 30 or 40 miles until they're finally completely driven out of the land. It's incredible. It's astonishing. A decisive victory. It was a fight that was fueled by faith. Fueled by faith. Abram didn't march in his own strength. Abram trusted God. It didn't matter how big the opposition was or how astronomical the odds may have been. Abram's God was bigger. Far bigger. No contest. No comparison. And even though Abram did not know whether or not God would give him the victory. He knew that God was sovereign. God was going to accomplish his will no matter what. So here we go. So he trusted. He stepped forward, sacrificing himself for the good of others. It's, it's a Christ-like sacrifice. The faith-fueled life, it produces Christ-like sacrifice for the good of others. It produces it. Why? Because when your faith is in God, you know that his agenda is more important than your agenda. You know that his kingdom, well, that's why you're here on earth. It was never about you building your kingdom. You know that you're, you're safe in his hands. He's got you, and he's going to do what he wants wants with your life you know he's in control of all things you know that he doesn't care about the odds in fact in God's economy the odds don't even exist he determines the beginning from the end what he says will be 
Christ freely sacrificed his life for us. And he calls those who have placed their trust in him to sacrifice their lives as well for the sake of others. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And we're not just supposed to make these sacrifices for people that we like, are we? No, 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 no. Not just the people who are of the same political affiliation or the ones who are nice to us. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do you have people who hate you? I do. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He goes on. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Is your faith in Christ? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you a child of the promise? If so, we have to ask, what is our faith producing? Is it leading us to get up, to leave the camp, to set out in hot pursuit of those who need rescue? Is it producing Christ-like sacrifice in you? Or are you sitting back in the recliner, changing the channels, and coming up with excuses to do nothing. They got what was coming to them. Why should I do anything to help them? God's punishing them right now. I don't want to get in the way of God's punishment. I'm too old. I'm too young. I've got my own problems, my own family to worry about. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I don't want other people to know that I'm associating with the likes of them. That might hurt my reputation as a Christian. See, we could come up with excuse after excuse after excuse, couldn't we? But that is not the way of faith. The faith-fueled life, it produces Christ-like sacrifice for the good of others. That's what it produced in Abram, and God gave Abram incredible victory. Can you imagine what that must have been like? 
on that 120-mile journey back. The thrill of going home after going over there. The, the sense of relief, the anticipation of the homecoming reception. To have rushed in where angels fear to tread, to stare certain death in the face and be miraculously delivered from the hands of the enemy. Not only delivered, but you were victorious. This is incredible. And the question now would become, how are these heroes going to respond when they get up on the platform at the award ceremony? How are they going to respond? What are they going to say? Who's going to get the credit? You know, just like you can learn a lot of people by watching them under pressure, you can also learn a great deal about a person by how they respond to praise. We've all seen that self-indulgent performance on the football field after a touchdown has been made, right? And we've also seen the people who take the knee and are pointing to heaven. We've seen celebrities, very few, but we've seen some actually give glory to God. We've seen others who have just said, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Just lavish the praise. I'm loving it. I deserve it. You tell a lot about a person by how they respond to praise. It's one thing to sacrifice for the sake of others. It's another to decide where the credit is going to go. To the victor go the spoils, right? Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Two kings go out to meet Abram and his band of war heroes. One is the king of Sodom. The other is this man named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, Salem is the same place that we know as Jerusalem. Yeru, that's just Sumerian for city. And so Jerusalem means city of Salem in Sumero-Akkadian. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek he wasn't a part of Abram's line. He was part of Ham's line. Do you remember when we were talking about Ham? Do you remember what Noah did after that, that weird event that took place in the tent? Ham's line was cursed. And yet God was at work in him. Not only was he king, but he was also a priest. He was leading people who were under him to worship the one true God. You see, this is an indication that even though Abram was singled out for a special purpose, God was going to bring about his great promise of hope to the world, that doesn't mean that God wasn't also working in any number of other ways. And as we look at Melchizedek, we have evidence of that. We say, well, God was doing something that the Bible hasn't even clued us in on yet. This is pretty cool. He's working in this man, Melchizedek. Now, there's a great deal we could say and should say and will say about Melchizedek in the days ahead. But we got to save that for a later time because Moses here is not directing us to just focus in on Melchizedek. He wants us to focus on Abram's response to these two kings. What happens? 
Melchizedek, he comes out and he offers Abram bread and wine, kind of as some type of reward refreshment after a job well done. And then he does something else. Look at verse 18 again. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands or in your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek blesses Abram. What's this? A priest? A priest of God? Pronouncing a blessing on Abram? And th- this has to hearken us back to the promise that God originally gave Abram, that promise to bless him. That's what's happening right here. God is blessing Abram through Melchizedek. It's a small blessing. There's more to come, yes, but at least it's part of it. And notice what else Melchizedek says. He says, And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See, the king of Salem, he knew to whom the victory really belonged. This was no feat of Abram's. This was God's doing. And in response, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of all this. He gives him a tithe. By doing this, he is in a sense recognizing, validating that truly this is a priest of God. He's a priest of God, and he's affirming that what he speaks is right. What's really interesting is what happens next. It's time for the king of Sodom to speak. In verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He says, You can have the spoils of war. Just give me the people. Does he not know how things work? Does he not know to the victor really do go the spoils? Abram deserved not just all the things that they have brought back. He deserves everyone. It's all his. He had the victory. But the king of Sodom, shrewd and greedy as he was, he demands that Abram turn the people over to him. And Abram could have flown off the handle at this point. He could have put him in his place. Who are you? Do you remember what those four kings did to you? Let's go look over at the tar pits over here, and we'll see what happened to your men. He doesn't do that. He's not phased. Instead, he has something far more important on his mind. Look at how he replies. And this must have been absolutely shocking to the king of Sodom. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And I would not take a thread, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Abram doesn't argue and say, yeah, the the possessions are mine, but the people are mine as well. And King Sodom, you are nothing. 
No. Instead, he does the exact opposite. And he says, I'm not taking anything. It's all yours. I don't want any of this. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to think that Abram's success had anything to do with the king of Sodom. No. There was only one person who was responsible for this victory. And there would be only one person who would ever get credit for Abram's prosperity. That was God. It's God. And it's God alone. Melchizedek was right. That's where the credit belonged. And think about it. Abram sacrificed because he trusted God. Abram had 318 men to go with him because God had provided them. In spite of impossible odds, Abram is victorious because of God. And any future prosperity that he would experience would all be because of God as well. Any good that came into Abram's life, in the end, it had to give glory to God. And that's what faith in God ultimately produces. Glory to God. Do you take credit for the good things that you do in life? Or does your faith move you to point everyone, everyone, everyone has to know, this is not me. This is God. Does it give glory to God? The faith-fueled life produces Christ-like sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God. And remember that Christ-like sacrifice, it's not something that we're to do just for people that we like. If we're to be truly tr Christ-like, then we've got to be like Abram and Jesus. They went after the undeserving, the tainted, the stained, the rude, the spiteful, the immoral. Who are those people in your life? Coworkers, family members, neighbors classmates who are the people that disagree with you who are the people that call you names and point fingers even if it's on facebook who are the people that take advantage of you people who you look at and they're neck deep in depravity who are the people out there that are actively hurting others and maybe proud of it Maybe it's people from a different political party or people who just downright hate you. Could Christ-like sacrifice include them? Could it look like going out of your way to show kindness? Could it look like caring enough to actually have friendly conversations, maybe even listening and asking questions rather than hurling insults and shoveling guilt? Could it look like inviting them into your home, visiting them in the hospital, even paying their bills? See, I can come up with all kinds of excuses to do nothing. But if my faith is in God, it's stirring something in me. It wants to produce something in me. Christ calls me to do as he did and lay down my life for them. Let's be people who are fueled by faith. 
let's let our faith in God produce in us Christ-like sacrifice for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray.